just two verses from Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 39 and 40. And before we read it, just a, uh, I don't know, a, a thought, uh, perhaps something you've thought about before also. Uh, the gospel writers don't really tell us very much about the childhood of Jesus, do they? Holy cow. Speaking of childhood, I totally missed that we have a brand new visitor here today, and, and he needs to be introduced immediately. And tell everyone his name again. Ezekiel Theophilus Ellsworth is a strong name. He needs to move to like North Dakota with six shooters. And <laughs> well, we are glad that he is healthy. He is healthy. Mom and dad, mom and boy, son are healthy. Doing. <laughs> I assume you're talking about Ezekiel. Okay. <laughs> a very healthy young man. We are glad he's here. But so even as we get to experience Ezekiel and all of our own children growing up and all the stories that surround their growing up, we don't really hear very much about the childhood of Jesus. We don't know much about uh, what he was like growing up. In fact, Mark and John tell us nothing about even the birth of Jesus. Mark and John jump right into the ministry of Jesus. It starts uh, when he is about 30 years old. Matthew gives us a little bit, tells us about uh, the Magi visiting. He does tell us uh, in typical male fashion, he gives us a verse that the baby was born. Uh, but then he tells us about the the visit of the Magi that happens somewhere between uh, seven weeks old and two years old. Um, uh, but then about also then their, their short stay in Egypt as they flee from Herod the Great and wait for him uh, to pass away, for him to die, and then they return to Nazareth. But those are the only things that Matthew tells us. Luke gives us one story that serves sort of as an example of uh, Jesus is growing up uh, in Nazareth and in, you know, uh, north of Jerusalem. And we'll look at that story uh, more specifically next week. Uh, but this week we just see, really, these two verses serve to summarize the first 12 years of Jesus' life. So we've got his birth account and then this summary of the first 12 years of his life, and then we jump to 12 years old. And then at the end of chapter 2, next week, you'll see that verse 52 will then summarize from age 12 to 30. So the next 18 years of his life are summarized in one verse at the end of this chapter. And so we don't really see much. We don't know anything about his teenage years. Now, this isn't to say that there hasn't been plenty of silly speculation about things that happened in Jesus's childhood. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in next week's message. But this week, after uh, four days of no 
electricity uh, and an office that was easily below 50 degrees, uh, I thought this was a good week to have a two-verse sermon. Uh, and so, um, so that's where we are this week. You know, God, we accept God's providences in all of our lives, don't we? So here we are, two verses. And, uh, but that's all right, because it's Communion Sunday. And I know that everyone gets a little antsy on Communion Sunday when I stand up here to preach anyway. So, uh, but as we look at these two verses, uh, we're going to see, first, uh, I want us to not just fly over, but consider the obedience of Joseph and Mary. And then, uh, and then I do want to look at the summary statements about Jesus' uh, growth from uh, about six, from about, uh, yeah, six weeks old, no, 40 days old to 12 years old. And then, uh, and then, we'll, uh, then we'll see how this applies to us. Uh, now, the implications and applications, we won't necessarily save those for the end. They might kind of jump in throughout. So feel free to take notes however you uh, feel like taking those notes. So for now, let's stand briefly for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Okay, so maybe also just briefly before we get into the passage itself, maybe there are things that you are wondering about uh, why the differences between Matthew's account and Luke's account. Why does Luke, I mean, the core, if you read this in one way, it just sounds like uh, after, after the dedication when uh, Jesus was six weeks old, uh, six weeks, yeah, six weeks old, uh, then it's, this makes it sound like then they moved to Nazareth, and you might be thinking, well, that's not, what, uh, that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says that after that dedication, at some point, the Magi came, and, and then they fled to Egypt, and then they moved to Nazareth. And so what do we have here? Why, why, is, uh, why does Luke not say anything about the Magi? Is Luke wrong? Is Matthew wrong? Are these just legends about Jesus' childhood? And so one possibility that, uh, that writers point out is that it's certainly possible that Luke uh, didn't know. It could be that uh, Luke wrote before Matthew, or that when he was writing the account of the gospel, he didn't have access to Matthew, uh, to what Matthew had written. To me, that sounds a little strange because it certainly seems like much of the information he got was from Mary herself, or at least from eyewitnesses. It would be strange that 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 would be something Mary would forget to tell Luke. Oh, so it doesn't seem like he didn't have that information. It seems more likely that it just doesn't. It's not part of what Luke is conveying. It's uh, it's not the only thing that we see in the Gospels that one writer finds important and other writers don't even mention. And so we don't look at Mark and John and say, aha, Mark and John don't think Jesus was ever born because they didn't write about it. And he's like, we, like, that would be silly. 
That would be silly for us to even think that that's what they thought. And so when we get to other portions that aren't in one gospel or in two or three, but not in a fourth, uh, it's, we don't have to say, oh, well, one of these is a lie. It could simply be that it wasn't a part of what was being conveyed. And so it's just not important. And in one sense, you might notice like the whole book of Luke and Acts, that two-book volume that he wrote, in one sense, the whole Luke-Acts collection is intended for us to see Jesus is the Messiah for the Gentiles. And so Matthew writes with a focus on Jesus as the Messiah of the Jewish people, and yet even in that focus, he wants you to know at the very outset, but not for the Jewish people only. At the very outset, he says, but Magi, Gentiles from the East, came and worshipped Jesus as God. And so perhaps it's not necessary for Luke because he's about to use two entire books to explain to you that Jesus is the Savior of Gentile sinners. And so he just doesn't need the account of the Magi. Which, by the way, here's a freebie for you. Then you should go and read all four accounts and see what stories make all four Gospels. What portions of Jesus' life are in every gospel account? And try to figure out why are those that important. So I'll leave that for you uh, to do to do your own uh, study. So the other thing to notice is that like, it's not that it's not true that after they performed all these uh, 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 activities that then they moved to Nazareth. It's just that there's a comma there, and in that comma, they also moved to Egypt and then to Nazareth. So it's certainly true that after they had performed all of these things, they moved to Galilee. It's just a few years later. So the first thing we want to look at is uh, the obedience of Joseph and Mary. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... This is, uh, this is something different than saying when they had performed everything according to uh, what the angel had spoken to them. So, in fact, when Jesus is circumcised, we're told that they named him Jesus just as the angel had told them to. But this is language that says they had uh, performed everything according to the law of the Lord, not, not the message of the Lord or the word of the Lord revealed to them. This is obedience specifically to God's commands. They were obedient to the Lord's commands. In verse 21, we're told, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised. Circumcision was a command of God. Uh, Jesus was circumcised. And it didn't matter that they had been told that Jesus was the Son of God. It didn't matter that they knew that Jesus was uh, the perfect Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was different. There was an obedience on Joseph and Mary's part to bring their son at eight days to be circumcised. It wasn't because he needed the circumcision for his own obedience, but they, as his parents, needed to circumcise their son in obedience to the law. If you remember way back in Exodus, when Moses is moving back to Egypt to, uh, to lead God's people out, 
Do you remember there's this weird passage where uh, Moses is about to be executed by the angel of the Lord because his sons had not yet been circumcised? It's interesting that the sons aren't going to be executed, but Moses is going to be executed. And Zipporah, acting quickly, circumcises their sons, and Moses' life is spared. The obedience wasn't on the part of the child. The obedience was on the part of of Moses and of Zipporah. And then in verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... So in other words, they're they're going to Jerusalem for these sacrifices. This wasn't something that they had invented or that they thought, hey, this would be a fun thing to do. Our kid's only six weeks old. Let's go to Jerusalem. Lots of people, lots of germs, lots of animals. Let's bring our six-week-old to Jerusalem. Hey, he's not sleeping through the night anyway. Why don't we take a trip? No, it was the law. It was the command. Again, not for the child's sake, but the firstborn male was dedicated to God, and you would go and you would ransom that firstborn male. You would give a sacrifice instead of giving your son over as a sacrifice. There was a sacrifice in his place, and then beyond that was the sacrifices of purification for the mother, sacrifices both of a burnt offering and a sin offering. And so these odd, these odd legends that we have that, that Mary herself was sinless. The, the command of the sacrifice was specifically for a sin offering for the mother of the child. And so Mary and Joseph are obedient to the law of God in their, in their uh, offerings. Somehow today, obedience to God's commands, obedience to what God has written in his word has come under fire. Today, for some reason, we associate being obedient to the word of God with being a legalist or being pharisaical. We read the gospel accounts and we assume that the only people who were trying to please God with obedience were people who were trying to win God's favor and kind of force God's hand. We read the gospels and we associate obedience to God's law with disingenuous religion. But we are missing many testimonies of obedience to God by faithful followers of God who were genuinely looking for the Messiah. I mean, look at at Simeon and Anna from Rich's sermon last week, which, by the way, is not to be confused with looking at Anna from Rich's household. So I'm talking about Anna from the sermon, not, not to say that Anna from his household isn't obedient. I mean, she's probably a very, very a fine young woman. So. But Simeon and Anna were obedient. They were faithful, and they were looking for the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were obedient. We're told at the front 
end of it being introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous in God's eyes. Not perfect. We see that in Zechariah and his unbelief. But they were righteous. They had a righteousness. They sought to please God with their works, with their actions, with their attitudes. Obedience is not always an expression of trying to earn God's favor. Sometimes obedience is an expression of delighting in God's favor. God has been good to me. How could I not obey him? In some corners of Christianity, I sometimes get the idea that that sanctification just begins and ends with admission. That the whole idea of sanctification, just as long as you admit, as long as you're honest about your sin, you know, sanctification just comes from, from you know, doing that hard, hard truth of, of being honest. You know, I'm weak, I'm, I'm broken, the struggle is real. It's like, oh, I hear you, I feel you. Good, good for you for admitting that. Such strength. And listen, I don't want you to think that like I'm saying, hey, stop talking about your sin. I'm just saying that's, that's really the first step in sanctification. It doesn't stop with just talking about how broken we are. It also, sanctification has to do with saying, hey, I, I hate my sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what Christ said. I'm going to take up my cross every day. I'm going to die to these things that I have been crucified to. If I'm crucified in Christ and no longer live, then, then I'm going to put to death these things that Christ died to save me from. You know, I'm going to live my life in a way that doesn't seek to uh, continue to sin so that grace may abound, as Paul says. In Romans 6, do I, do I consider myself dead to the sin that is already dead in me? Do I, am I fighting every day? Again, this is from Romans 6. Am I fighting every day to keep sin from reigning in my mortal body? Sin that wants to make me obey its passions. Am I seeking to kill the passions that still remain in me so that the passions of Christ, the desires of my Lord, can take root in my heart? Joseph and Mary were obedient because of their love for God and because of God's love for them. Did Mary and Joseph have an understandable hardship? Of course they did. They're in a strange town. They weren't around their close relatives, or at least for those first few days, they're staying in a, an extended family's home, a crowded extended family home. And when Jesus was eight days old, did they say, look, we still have to find a place to live. We don't, we don't have time for this. This can wait. Joseph, you got to get a job. I mean, if we're going to be here a while, you need to do something. I mean, we do not have, I mean, I think God will understand if we don't show up on day eight for his circumcision. I think it's going to be okay. He is the son of God. I think it can wait. There was none of that. Is it understandable that they would be under these pressures? Of course it would be. 
But on the day, on the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised according to the law of God. And then 33 days later, they didn't claim that they still needed to find a place. They didn't claim that they finally found a place, but they still needed to unpack. They didn't claim that, look, he's just finally sleeping through the night. Listen, if anyone's doing it right, we are. We are growing our kid God's way. It's God himself. We finally got the cycle going. He's sleeping a solid seven hours. We are not walking to Jerusalem. No, they go. For the dedication of the firstborn male, for the cleansing of Mary, a burnt offering and a sin offering, according to the law of the Lord. And I know that we're nine days into the new year now. But what would it look like? What would it look like in your homes? What would it look like in your heart? What would it look like in your relationships, in your private time, in your worship? What would your worship of God look like if this year you said, I am resolved to be about the work of killing the sin that is killing my love for Christ. I will kill the sin that is killing my love for Christ because it is an obedient thing to do to the God, for the God who loved me. We don't want to gloss over the obedience of Joseph and Mary. But then second, we, we also don't want to gloss over the growth of Jesus Christ, the, the growth of the Christ child. In one verse, we get from six weeks old to 12 years old. And I know some of you are like, wouldn't that be nice? Just wait till the next verse when you go from eight, from 12 to 30. That's an even better job. I mean, no, I didn't. Anyway, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So this is actually, uh, if you look back at, the last verse of chapter 1, this is a similar summary statement. So John the Baptist gets a summary statement of his from birth to adulthood. In verse 80, we're told, And the child, being John the Baptist, and the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And so once again, it's just, for one thing, it's a subtle way that, again, Luke establishes that Jesus isn't just another prophet like John, that Jesus is greater than John. He does it first in just a subtle way with the amount of ink that he uses to summarize the growth. You know, John, we're told two things. The child grew and became strong in the spirit. Jesus, we're told he grew and became strong and became filled with wisdom and the favor of God was on him. But also, more significant, because it's not just speculating about word count, but looking at the actual words that are used to describe Jesus' growth here, we're, we're told four things. First of all, he grew. He became strong. He became filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was on him. He grew, first of all, he grew in stature. And maybe this is just one of those things that, well, duh, but does it ever, like, do you ever kind of think about that? That God had to grow up. Like he, I mean, if we're told that he was conceived by the Virgin Mary and that she gave birth to him, then he, and he was laid 
in a manger in swaddling cloths is because he was an infant. And he had to grow physically. He had to go through. So everything you had to go through from infancy to 12 years old, Luke is telling you Jesus went through. So everything you went through from 0 to 12 years old physically, Jesus went through just without sin. So Jesus couldn't hold his own head up. The Son of God needed someone to hold his head up or it would like flop over. Uh, The Son of God needed someone else to feed him or he would starve. The Son of God needed someone else to change him or he would stink. The Son of God had to learn to hold his head up and learn to sit up and learn to crawl and then learn to stand and fall when he stood and then learn to walk and fall when he tried to walk and learn to run and fall when he tried to run. All of these things. The Son of God who created the universe had to learn to feed himself. Like I love watching young Children learn that process, you know, with Cheerios spread on their tray. And there's like, you know, they just, you know, it's a good thing they're so sticky at the beginning and so slobbery because it's the only way to get food into them. You just kind of put your hand down and it magneto, it sticks to their hands and then they just kind of eat it off of it. But watching them like try to pinch and, and grab the Cheerios and they can never get it. And then they notice there's one stuck on the back of their hand and they're like trying to like go through all these contortions to figure out how to eat that one on the back. Jesus did that. Well, not with Cheerios, but Jesus did that. He had to learn how to eat, how to, the dexterity that it takes. You know, toddlers, when they're little, you know, their head is like 50 to 60% of their body weight. Like, have you ever tried to get on a couch the way a toddler gets on a couch? Like, they use their head. They put their head on the couch, and then pretty soon the whole body just kind of falls up onto the couch with them. Like, that is insane strength, first of all. Jesus did that. That's how Jesus got up on the couches. The Son of God and Savior of sinners had to use the, the weight of his head to get up onto a couch. That's, that's what Jesus went through. He grew in stature. But he also grew in knowledge. Jesus had to be taught just like all of us And everyone in here from 0 to 12 had to be taught. No one went to Jesus. Mary and Joseph didn't take Jesus to family get-togethers when he was six years old and say, hey, hey, watch this. Jesus, name all of the U.S. presidents in order. Watch. He would have said what any six-year-old in Israel in first century Palestine would have said. The what in where? He didn't like that. He wasn't just like magically IQ of 7,000. He had to be taught things. In fact, Jesus at six years old, they probably couldn't even say to him, hey, Jesus, name all the kings of Judah in chronological order. Now, maybe they did by then. Maybe they had a little sing-songy, first there was David, then Solomon, then he screwed it all up, and now we have Rehoboam. So I don't know. I don't know how they did that. But so they, he had to be taught these things. You know, even at 12 years old, nobody went to Jesus and said, hey, explain to the rabbis the Pythagorean theorem. 
No, there was none of that. Jesus had to be taught. He grew in knowledge. The only thing that he didn't have was sin when he was taught. He still had to be taught. He still had to memorize things. He still had to learn scripture. He still had to learn how to read and how to write. But there was no sin involved. And so as he grew in knowledge, he grew in wisdom. I mean, this should boggle our minds. God, the Son, had to learn wisdom. In fact, verse 52 makes it more clear. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So the wisdom that Christ had. Now, certainly without sin, his knowledge would translate more quickly into wisdom, wouldn't it? Imagine the things that we would be able to apply if we weren't sinful in when, when we were learning. So there wasn't anger over his lessons. There wasn't laziness. There wasn't, if I wait to the last minute to do it, it only takes a minute to do. There was no procrastination in Jesus when he learned. Like all of these things, he did them perfectly without sin. And yet he still had to do them. He still had to learn. He simply learned perfectly. He grew in wisdom. It was a process. But it doesn't mean that there wasn't wisdom. All of us have probably experienced wisdom from our children. Like it's usually at times that we really don't want to experience that wisdom. But our children, like they surprise us. You know, when Jacob was probably four or five years old, it's Christmas time right now. Jacob, uh, we were, you know, we, you know, we built up the whole, you know, Christmas, what the real meaning is, all of this and uh, you know, we had a great Christmas day. You know, we did the stockings. We did the big dinner. We did gifts. It was wonderful. And Jacob was on his way to bed, and he's at the top of the stairs, and, and he's standing there, and he looks down the stairs, and he says to me, when are we going to celebrate Christmas? And so me, I'm thinking, like, he's as uh, materialistic as his dad, so I'm about to give him the what for. I'm like, what are you talking about? What more could we possibly have given you on this day? I was like, what, what are you talking about? We, we celebrated Christmas. That's what we did. That's what we did all day. And he said, oh, I, I guess I thought we would like pray or something or like read the Bible. And so I tell some of these stories so that you like, some of you had this weird idea about like what my parenting style was with my kids. It was as screwed up as yours is, okay? Like, I made ridiculously awful, sinful decisions that I needed a four-year-old to remind me, hey, I thought you spent a month telling me this isn't what Christmas is about, and then we get to the day, and it feels like that's all Christmas was about. And so, I don't know if this was his plan or not, but it definitely delayed his bedtime, because then we all gathered around the table, and we had a really nice time that evening together. Maybe not quite as young. My daughter, uh, in the car one time, I don't know where this question came from, but we were driving along. I was singing the doxology followed by Kumbaya, and she said to me, um, so in, in Matthew, when it talks about like, like calling people fool and like hating other people, it's like murdering them in your heart. I was like, yeah. 
and we're driving along. She said, do you think that's what you're doing right now? And I was like, yes, 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 that is exactly what I'm doing. I do feel like, yes, no, you're right, yes. <laughs> you know, wisdom come, like, even, so if even sinful children can grow in wisdom, imagine having no sin and the wisdom that Jesus grew in. We'll watch, we'll see that play out for us in a 12-year-old next week. But Jesus grew in wisdom. You know, what are the implications for you and me? I think um, some of it is, uh, we don't have to write off the incarnation quite as quickly as we do. Like, we should be in awe of uh, that God became a man. Like, it's okay to find that mysterious and a little weird. It should cause us to worship God that much more, that we don't really understand how, how that can happen. That God embraced the humility of our flesh. I mean, this is, I mean, we haven't even gotten into like the teenage years. Everything that you faced your teenage years, Jesus faced just without sin. We should be humbled in one sense to realize that he did this to save us from our sins. He took on our frailty, all the frailty that we face in this fallen world, just without sin. Like he took all of that on himself. He faced it all with us, for us. And so we should worship, we should be humble, but you should be encouraged. I mean, if God would go through all of that to save you, I mean, is he gonna, is he gonna screw that up now? Is he gonna now leave it in your hands to get it all right? If God would embrace that for you, how can, we, how can we doubt his love for us? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would seek to be obedient to you this year. Not in some strange perfectionist way, but that we would, we would desire to be obedient because of your love for us. God, I pray that we would uh, be humbled and amazed and encouraged and emboldened by the incarnation of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.